there are things as we travel this earth's shifting sands that transcend all the reason of man but the things that matter the most in this world they can never be held in our hands i believe in a hill called mount calvary i believe whatever the cost and when time has surrendered and earth is no more i still claim Christ who was slain on the cross has the power to change lives today. And by change me completely, a new life is mine. That is why by the cross I will stay. I believe in a hill called Mount I believe whatever the cost, and when time has surrendered and earth is no more, I still cling to that old rugged cross. I believe that this life with its great mysteries surely one day come to an end but faith will conquer the darkness and death and will lead me at last to my friend I believe on a hill called Mount Calvary I believe whatever that it does cost you something to believe. Do you know that? The gift is free. Salvation is a free gift through the grace of God. Nothing I can do, nothing you can do can earn it. It's free for the taking. But do you know it's going to cost you everything you have to receive it? That's a mystery, isn't it? To think that it's free, but yet it costs you something. And you know what's going to cost you? It's going to cost you your sin. It's going to cost you your pain. It's going to cost you your misery. It's going to cost you guilt. It's going to cost you shame. It's going to cost you regret. Everything in life that is a problem for you, it will cost you to give that up. Now, do you want to give up your problems? then accept the cross. Now, it's also going to cost you your time. 
It's going to cost you your money. It's going to cost you your effort. It's going to cost you everything you are. It's still a good trade because at the end of the day, we're going to be casting our crowns before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a good trade. I can't wait. I can't wait. Amen. We're talking this morning about end times again. We're still in the parables of Jesus talking about the end times. We're in Matthew chapter 25 today. So I would encourage you to open your Bible. Who's brought their Bible today? Who has a Bible with you? All right, would you all open it? I know we put things up on the screen, which is really cool. End times. We're going to talk about the parable of the talents today. Jesus is on a parable roll right here. <laughs> I mean, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and he's answering some questions that they gave him back in chapter 24. And um, let's just review that question. I know you're on Matthew chapter 25, but just follow it here with me. Or you can turn back, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. It says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what, we, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They had just recently walked by the temple, and the temple was beautiful. It was a big, beautiful stone building. It was beautiful. And the disciples were commenting to Jesus how beautiful that building is. And Jesus made the prophetic statement to say, Guys, understand that this is not going to last. In fact, it's going to be destroyed, and every stone will be toppled. There will be no stone upon left upon another. And that certainly upset the disciples, and it, it gave them some questions at that time. And so now Jesus is, is they said, well, when is that going to happen, and what is the sign of the times? They asked two different questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed, and then what is the signs of the end times? Two different questions. Don't think they realized it was two different questions, but it was. Now, 70 years later or so, in AD 66, the temple was destroyed. Uh, emperor Nero, Nero uh, a Roman emperor, emperor uh, remember the Jewish people were under Roman, Roman rule. That's why they thought Jesus was going to be the deliverer to them physically to get them out of the Roman rule. But Jesus had a different kingdom in mind when he died. His kingdom was in heaven, not on earth. So 70 years after this time or so, <laughs> that prophecy was fulfilled. The temple was destroyed. It was destroyed twice, actually, but that first time was AD 70 or, 80, 70 or so, 66 in that area, and it was destroyed. But the problem here, the question here, is that Jesus is still com com commenting to these men and answering the question about what are the, what's the end of the times going to be like? What are the signs of the end of the time? And that's what we're talking about today, that Jesus is talking to us today about what are the things going to be like. And we talked about last week, we talked about the parable of the, the ten virgins, and Jesus often spoke in parables to make his point. So today we're going to talk about the parable of the talents. And I think that we have to recognize that there's always different perceptions about what do we do in the end times. Um, and I think you've all seen or heard it or read it or whatever. There's different prophetic people that make a lot of crazy comments about what are we doing in the end times. I mean, there are some that are going to say, I'm selling everything I have and I'm just going to move up to the mountaintop and I'm just going to wait for the Lord to return. All right, there's, there's that option. You could take, well, you could take that idea if you wanted to. Or you could become a prepper and uh, buy guns and buy supplies and hoard everything right now and just prepare yourself for the coming turmoil and just protect your investments and I guess I would ask one of those people that are preppers, and I'm not saying you shouldn't prepare, but I, get, I guess I would ask somebody that if you have all the food and your neighbors in your neighborhood don't have any food, what are you going to do when they come to your door? What are, they, what are you going to do if they come to your door and they say, hey, I'm starving, are you going to share or are you going to shoot them? I don't know, good question. I, maybe, I hope we never get to that point. Or... We could take a look at what the Bible says and we could be actively busy in the kingdom. And that's what the parable of the talents are about. And that's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk about what Jesus would have us to do. Because if Jesus wanted us to go on the mountaintop and wait, he would have said, go on the mountaintop and wait. Or if he would have said, store up everything in yourself and get all these weapons around you and protect yourself and your investments so when people come, you're going to shoot them. He would have said that. But he didn't say that. 
what he said was what we're going to talk about in Matthew chapter 25. So open your Bible, start at verse 13. I'm going to read a lot, so follow along with me. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you just give us your discernment and wisdom on this passage. There's much to talk about. Help us to get to the important parts and help us to skip over the things that aren't important, that we don't get distracted. Let us see your words. Let us see your intent. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, go right to verse 30. This is an important topic. This is an important parable. This is not just a man losing his reward. This is a man that loses heaven. This is a man that is going to hell. So we need to listen to this passage. We need to listen to this parable, and we need to take it very seriously here. It says in verse 30, and throw that worthless servant into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is not in the outer courts of heaven. That is not in the lower income brackets of heaven. No, that is in hell. So this passage here, this parable that Jesus is talking about is talking life or death. Serious information here. So today, this is a serious message. Okay? So let's listen and let's glean what the Lord would have us to hear. All right. So he's giving three servants three different amounts of money while he's then going to go on a long trip. This was a wealthy man and he had lots of money and he is going to go on a trip and so he says, before I go, guys, I'm going to take three of my servants and I'm going to give you some of my money and I'm going to ask you to take care of it. In fact, he didn't even give them an instruction. He didn't even tell them what to do with it. He didn't say, go make money with it. He didn't tell them anything, according to the parable. He just gave them the talents. He gave them the money. So there are some things here that we can glean on how important this is. And the reason it's important to talk about it now as an end-of-age topic is because the man was going on a long journey. This is signifying Jesus has given this parable about his coming back. Jesus is the man that has given the talents to his servants and he said he's going on a long journey. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples. He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit 
while he went away on a long journey. And he said, soon I'm going to come back. Well, that's what we're talking about here. We are, we are signifying, we're in the age of the servants here. We're in the age of the church here where Jesus has given us the talent. He's given us the money. He's given us the resources. And then we are responsible to be good stewards of that until he comes back. And that's, that's why Jesus is talking about this in the, as an end-time topic. Because we are to be actively involved and busy in the kingdom of God bringing back a prophet. And we'll talk about that more. That's why it's important as an end-time topic. We, could, we talked about our three options. We can either go into the mountaintop, we can be a prepper, or we can be actively engaged. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24 and read what Jesus said, this is what we talked about a week or so ago, about what we should be doing in the end times. Matthew chapter 24, verse 45 and 46, it says, it asks the question, Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Verse 46, It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. All right, when Jesus comes back, what are you going to be doing? What am I going to be doing? Very important that we know that when Jesus comes back, he's expecting something of us when he returns. What are we doing? Are we sleeping? Are we wasting time? Are we wasting resources? Are we playing worldly games? What are we doing? That's the question I want you to think about as we go through this lesson today. So let's talk about some of the key terms and meanings of this parable that we can look into that will help us to give us better meaning. First of all, let's look at the element of time. The element of time. Time is a vitally important element in the life of mortal men. We live by the clock. Time is very important for us. Yet God is totally unimpacted by time. God lives outside of the realm of time, and we can't even begin to comprehend that. We can't even begin to comprehend how a day is like a thousand years for the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. Because we are created to live in the element of time, so time is very important. And just because it doesn't impact God, understand, though, he still uses time as a tool. Time is in one of God's tools in his toolbox for how he deals with us in our humanity. So we're going to recognize that time is significant. It always is significant, and we see many other areas in Scripture where it is. Now, in this particular passage, Jesus made it clear that the master was going to return after a long time being away. Jesus says, I'm going to return after a long time of being away. So what do we do while we're waiting? This is the question. What do we do while we're waiting in this element of time? He all, the other thing about this Jesus' return is that um, we might know the season of his return. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's describing to these disciples here and other places what is it going to be like when he does return. So he's given us the information so that we know the season of his timing, but we do not know the exact day or the hour. All right, We don't know exactly when, but we do know he's coming. And God uses this knowing that Christ is going to return at an unknown time as a benefit to us because it should keep us on our toes. It should keep us expecting it. For some, it's a fearful thing. For the Christian, for the redeemed, it's a joyful thing. Uh, there's two things about time that are very important. Uh, number one, I don't know the timing of the rapture. I see the seasons. I see the signs all around us. I mean, we are living in the last days. I certainly see that. You cannot look at the news and not understand that. If you read Scripture, it talks about earthquakes and famines and, and, and troubles and wars and rumors of wars and all the things that are happening. It, it says those things must happen, and, and, but it's still the, the end is still going to come. So it's still coming, and it's all around us. So I don't know the rapture timing but I do know it's going to happen. And the other thing I know is going to happen that I don't know is when my heart's going to stop beating. That's going to stop. That's going to happen too. And I don't know when that's going to happen. So for both reasons, I need to be living as a wise steward. 
I don't have the luxury to say, God, I will get ready at the last minute, at the last second, because I don't know when that last second is going to be. In this parable, time is noted that the master is gone on his long trip. And the other thing that's significant about time in this, in this, in this, in this parable is that the, faith, the faithful stewards wasted no time in getting to work increasing the, the master's money. They didn't waste the time. If you go back and read it and open up your Bible and go back to it, um, the man had received, where did he say, give five bergs, okay. Um, so also, okay, to only get five bags, each according to, the, anyone, the man who had received the five bags went at once, what went at once and put his money to work. He didn't say, okay, thanks, now I'm going to go vacation. I'm going to go take some time off here, and I'm going to go take a break, and if I, get, if I get to it, I might come back and invest it. No, the steward, the faithful steward, recognized the urgency of the time, and as soon as he got the talent of money, he went and put it to work, and he worked with it immediately, okay? So time is a commodity. In fact, it is the most precious commodity that we have because I can't get a second back. I can lose money and still make it back, but I can't get back time. All right, Time's a very important element in this parable, and it's a very important element in our life. Okay, let's talk about the element of money for a minute. The talent here was a term for money, not an ability. It's not a talent of ability. It's a, a talent is a measurement of money in that day. It was a weight measurement of gold or bronze or whatever, and depending on the precious metal, uh, talent would be worth more or less depending on the weight of whatever that pressure metal was. So we can assume here that, it's not assumed, we can go back and recognize that what he was talking about was not just a little bit of money, it was a large sum of money. A talent could have been worth 20 years' wages. A talent of gold could have been worth a, a, a 20 years' wages. So it's a lot of money. So we're not talking about trivial stuff here. The talents were distributed not... And, and as, the talent, as the money was distributed, it was distributed on the, at the ability, uh, based on the ability of the servant. And it wasn't that the money gave them the ability. It was they were given it according to their ability. This is important for us because we're all different people. And we also saw that when the reward came for the man with ba five bags, the man with two bags, Jesus gave the same reward. So Jesus is not giving me, giving you, and then he's going to, the, 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 this talent or this resource to have to invest it and then give us a different reward. He's going to reward us on our uses of it. He's going to reward on the fact that we brought a profit back on it. Okay, we'll see the, the difference here when it comes to the third servant and how he didn't use the money wisely. So money and wealth are important, but they do not make the Christian. In other words, just because you got money doesn't mean you're a Christian. And just because you don't have money doesn't mean you're a Christian. Money has nothing to do with your Christianity. It's your heart. All right, let's look about the element of work. Now, this can be a very confusing point in the context of Christianity because um, we live in the era of grace, and many uh, hyper-grace people say, well, I am saved by grace and grace alone, therefore my work and my activities don't matter. Well, that's a cop-out, and that's an easy way to think about something that's not true because your work does matter. In fact, James, the half-brother of Christ, says it very strongly in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but there's nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith and action go together. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. We're saved unto good works. We're not saved by our good works. When I get saved, the expectation is I go to work. 
And then the fruit of my work is proof of my salvation. I don't work for my salvation, but I'm working when I'm saved. I'm working as a result of my salvation. Does that make sense? All right, let's talk about the element of profit. We're going to come back to work in a few more minutes because there are some really important parts at work we're going to talk about. The element of profit. The master gave his money to the servants with an expectation of a profitable return on the investment that he gave them. Matthew 25, read it with me again. Open your Bible, go back to that Matthew 25. You've already read it. Starting at verse 28, it says, So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. This is to the third servant that did not bring a return back. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now, it seems like a little harsh, doesn't it, that we're taking something away from somebody and going to give it to somebody that's got more? It just seems like it's a really harsh thing to say. But it's the principle of the fact that God is looking for a return on his investment in our life. And he makes it very clear in this parable that it's not just that you have it. It's not just that he gave you the money for you just to squander and your time, for you to invest it the way you want to invest it without any eternal uh, kingdom reward, intentional aspect. But it's truly the fact that God is expecting a return. And I know that for the church world, that we live in a nonprofit world, that it's hard to think about profit in the realm of a church. But yet, God gives us the resources, and he's expecting a profitable return on his investment in the eternal terms of spiritual growth and physical growth. He is looking for a church to grow spiritually and physically. Amen? That's an important element. Let's talk about the judgment day. Those are the elements that made up that make up this parable. Now let's talk about the judgment day. With these key elements understood, what is judgment day going to look like? For these three servants. Well, Matthew chapter 25, verse 19. There's an accountability time. Verse 19 says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Judgment day. It's coming. Let's examine the attitude of the servants on this long-awaited day. Okay, for the two faithful servants that were working hard, judgment day was an, an exciting day for them. They were working hard from the moment they got the talent, from the moment the master gave them the money, they went to work. And it's important to know that they went to work, not just the money went to work. They were actively involved in the investment of the money so, to make sure that it got the biggest return. They were excited about the fact that the master was coming back and they were excited to show them the return that they had earned. Both of the servants doubled the money that they were entrusted. And let's look at what Judgment Day looks like for them. First, first things. First, they received what? Look at your Bible. They received their master's commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Well done. Man, it doesn't, don't you like to be, when you do something, don't you like to have someone say, good job? It is, there's something about that when you get a card or something, and by the way, thank you for those that are sending cards. Uh, I know what you're doing. It's Pastor Appreciation Month, and you're all sending cards. And I tell you what, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's so much nice, it's so nice to open a card and see somebody's handwritten little note with their signature on it and saying thank you. So I appreciate that. Thank you. The second thing about this Judgment Day for them was because of their faithful and productive return, they were given charge of a much greater portion of their master's abundance. He says, I will put you in charge of many things. And then thirdly, they were invited to enter into a life of joy and happiness. Come and share your master's happiness. It's a good day. Judgment day is a good day for the faithful steward. What happens to the third slave that buried the talent of money and brought the master's initial investment without any return or without any profit. 
Well, first, he was accursed by the master. The master said, you wicked and lazy servant. Secondly, because he didn't bring a profitable return, what he had was taken from him and given to another. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. And then thirdly, he was condemned to punishment and great sadness and great pain. For it said, And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two different major outcomes based upon their stewardship of the gift. It wasn't how much they were given. The guy that was given five, the guy that was given two, the guy that was given one. It's not how much, it's how they used it. Nothing to do with how much money you have or don't have. It's how are you using what you have. That's the key. So this parable suggests great consequences of our choices. Great consequences, either for the positive or for the negative. There are consequences of our choices. Another interesting thing to note about this parable is that our perception of God can be totally wrong and if we don't correct the misconception or this, 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 this bad perception, it can have devastating results. I'm talking about the third servant here. Why didn't the third servant invest the master's money? Why didn't he do something with it? Taking aside that he's just plain lazy, <laughs> that's what the Bible said. But what is it? What's wrong with his viewpoint of the master that he didn't want to invest his money? Well, go to verse 24. Verse 24, this is the perception that needed to be correcting. He said, then the man who, brought, who had received one bag of gold came and he said, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and hid your gold in the ground. Now let me ask the question, where did he get that conception? Where did he get that? Obviously the first two didn't have that problem. The first two didn't have that, that perception of the master because they were eager. They, there was nothing in this parable that ever said this was, a, this was a hard master. Never said anything about his hardness at all. It just said he was a master. He was a wealthy man, obviously. And it was a misconception of the third lazy servant that got him in all the trouble that he had because he was afraid. The truth here is that the nature of laziness the nature of laziness has to find a form of justification to justify the lack of work or effort required to accomplish something. Now, sometimes, or there are some people that are just plain lazy. And I will tell you, I have a problem with that because I have a tendency to be lazy. I, I, this is speaking to me. All right, I have, a, I have a tendency, If my wife will tell you that, I'm glad she's not here, she'd be saying, amen, brother, preach it. <laughs> because I, I have a tendency to kind of like to sit on a couch and watch a football game instead of going out and doing stuff I should be doing. I, I, I battle that. It's a, it's a problem for me. So I get it here. But a person that doesn't want to do something will find excuses that justify his lack of action in order to make himself feel good about something that is bad. In the case of the wicked, lazy servant, he had such a negative perception of his master that he took on the attitude that, I knew you were so unreasonable that there was no way I was going to please you, so why should I even try? Total misconception. What kind of logic is that? Who's the motivator behind that? It certainly isn't the Holy Spirit. And can I make the point here that many times it works in a similar manner that a person that's dealing with a particular sin or a weakness in their life, it may not be laziness, but it may be something else, that they're very sensitive when people start speaking about it and they get very defensive about it. I just read a, 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 an article that, this week that really kind of brought this point home. It's about a prominent religious leader that was speaking out that he didn't see sexual interaction between men or women as sinful, but rather as an expression of a committed, loving a, a relationship. He, he, would not make a, he would not say that it was wrong to have sex outside of the marriage covenant between, well, two heterosexuals or even two homosexuals. It's wrong either way, of course, but he wouldn't say that. 
And he wouldn't say that because, let me read the context. This person says, I'm not even going to tell you who it is. He is not giving a clear answer on whether homosexual sin is a sin because of irreconcilable differences in the Anglican Church worldwide. This archbishop acknowledged this was because of divergent opinions across worldwide congregations. He described the differences as irreconcilable. So what he was saying is that this is such a big problem that why even try to work on it? Okay, that's basically what he, that's the excuse he was giving. But then he goes on, in a conclusion to the comments released online, he said he admitted to morally copping out because he himself was struggling with the issue. He himself was probably struggling with his own sexuality preferences. So he had a hard time coming out and saying, I can't call it a sin because it might be something that I'm doing. Wow. That's a scary position to be in. We can't justify our actions or what God wants us to do because we happen to be doing something that maybe God's not pleased with, and so we justify it to be, oh, I guess it'll be okay. God, God's really not too serious about that particular element. Well, can I tell you that if his word says it, he is. We don't have the right to minimize it. Let's keep going. Verse 26, the master, he deals with this misconception. Verse 26 says, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. He asks it as a question. He's, he's basically stating it as a question. So you know that. And if you knew that, well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would receive it back with interest. So if you knew that I'm so hard, that's even more reason why didn't you do something with it? I'm telling you right now that God is not hard. This is not a representation of who God is. This, what he was, what the master was clearly saying, what he was repeating it back to the man, so hopefully the man could see the reverse logic in it. You're mean to say that you think I was that hard? What have I ever done to you in the past that was that hard? But, yet you, but if you think that, where is the logic then that you wouldn't do anything with what I gave, that I gave you? It doesn't make any logical sense. And I will tell you that sin makes no logical sense. It makes no sin when you're dealing with, or it makes no sense when you're dealing with sin to try to make logic to it because you just can't. Because when you know the consequences of sin are going to bring death, but yet I play with it like it's my friend, and I think somehow, some way, I'm going to get out of this one, it just doesn't make any logical sense. So I think that's the question. That's, that's the question that the master is trying to ask, and that's the question that I think we should get out of this today. Ask yourself the question, should the third servant get a positive reward from the master in his parable for doing nothing? Should he get a reward? I mean, what do you think? Well, then apply that same logical question in our lives today. Am I living a life that is going to be rewarded by Jesus when I stand before him come my judgment day? See, if I don't think that third wicked lazy servant should get a positive reward because he didn't bring back any return, <laughs> does it not hit home with me? Should I get a positive reward? Am I living a life before the Lord this morning that deserves to have a positive answer, say, well done, my good and faithful? Have I been good and faithful? See, this is why I'm telling you, this is, a, this is an important parable. This is the parable that goes life and death. Actions have consequences no matter what my perceptions are. Wisdom says, learn the truth of what the master is expecting and then get to work and understand that his judgments are going to be based on his word and not my perceptions. Truth, love, they go together. All right, now, we could go on and on, but I want to keep this going to a point. God created, let's talk about work for a minute. God created man to be a worker. God created us to work. Do you know that? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden 
to work it and take care of it. He created us to be workers. Work is intended to be a thing of pleasure and of great reward, not drudgery and not something to avoid. If I get the right context of work, it becomes a pleasure, not drudgery. Laziness and a desire to escape work is part of the curse of sin and is a result of the enemy's influence in our lives. The desire to gain without effort is a result of the fallen nature of mankind. That's why gambling is so serious. That I could take my dollar or my quarter and throw it in that little slot machine over there and expect to get a big return out of something that I didn't earn is not right. It's not godly. Not only that, but it's addictive. Because I think, well, if I throw one more in, this might be the pull. One more might be the pull. And do you see how the enemy will take these little things and also all of a sudden turn them into addictions and they become so devastatingly wrong that it destroys your life? That's the illogical part of sin. You can't bring logic to it. Because God created man to work, God makes work part of the reward of the faithful. Follow me here. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. <laughs> Come, share your master's happiness. Well, I will, I will put you in charge of many things. That's the reward he gets for doing a good job with a few things. <laughs> and I know, I've talked about this before with some people, and they say, that's the last thing I want is more responsibility. I'm trying to get to heaven so I don't have responsibility. I'm tired of my response. I'm tired. I'm burned out down here. I want to go to heaven and relax. Well, can I tell you that when we work under the context the way God created work, that is pure relaxation? Because we're allowing him to work in us rather than me work without God. When I start working without God, it becomes hard. It becomes drudgery. But when I invite him in and say, Father, work through me, like the song we sang earlier, clean me up, right? I, I, it's not about me having to do the work. It's about God cleaning the work up in me. And when he cleans my life up, all of a sudden now I see work to be different because the work in the kingdom is a profitable work of eternal rewards and eternal re returns. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share your master's happiness. Hmm. God designed work as a good thing. It kind of proves how far we've fallen in the curse of sin, that we look at work as a curse. It just shows you how the enemy has distorted what God has created as good, and he's made it something so detestable by us humans to think that work is bad. Interesting formula here. Maybe you could put it up, treasure. Well, there's an interesting formula here. Resources plus labor... Our work times time equals profit or rewards. We have things to do. We use the talents. God given us the talents, okay? God gave us the talent, the money, the resources. We put in the work, and then we let that work over time, and it equals eternal rewards. But if I take anything out of that left hand of that equation, and if I don't think my labor is important or my work's important, well, then my reward's going to be less, if I even have a reward. Something to think about. Let me get down to the conclusion here, okay? So here we are today in our church world, in our perspective, living in the end times. What does it really mean to us? What do I really do with this? Am I busy working in the kingdom so that when the master returns, will he find me busy at work? bringing in a profitable return, or will he find me lazy and afraid and useless? That's the question. That's what this parable is talking about. Let me give a simple illustration that just might bring this to close. What if the church were to be scrutinized as a business? Go with me here for a minute. Flow with me. Work with me a little bit here. 
If the church was a business that God sees as a profitable entity, we're, see, we're so used to thinking in nonprofit terms that we are almost shocked to hear such a question raised. Yet, it, yet this is, is this not what our Lord is teaching us in this parable? That God expects a prophet and he holds us accountable for what we have done with what he has entrusted to us? Right? So if the church is a business and I am a member of the church, I would then become an employee, okay? Christ is the employer. We're in the church world, we're in the business world, I'm the employee. Okay, in a business... It's not unusual for annual performance reviews. I've been an employee of a business, of a, of a company before, and every year I'd get an annual performance review. Because they understand, the business understands that the only way that business is going to be profitable and effective is if their employees are profitable and effective. You can't build a strong company on weak employees. So what they do is these, these performance reviews come as a way to measure the element of the employee. How productive are they? What happens if a person gets negative performance reviews? Well, if they get enough of them, they might lose their job or, de or get demoted. Right? Do you agree with that? Is that right? Okay. Well, now let's look at our involvement in the business here of the church. I'm going to get a little personal here. Based on your work ethic and your involvement, what kind of performance review would you expect? Would I, would you, be in jeopardy of losing your job? If we did, if we did performance reviews of church members in the context of a business, where would you be on that performance review? I know this seems pretty harsh and business-like, but doesn't it only make sense that we would look at eternal, eternity and eternal things to be pretty serious and pretty harsh? See, if I'm thinking that I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to convince God of something that I'm not doing today, well, can I tell you that you're not going to be able to do that? You're not going to be able to talk God out of anything up there. It's too late. Now is the time. You all know how frustrating it is to be around fickle people. You know the ones that are there for you one minute and then gone the next. They say, yeah, I'll be there for you, but they never show up when you need them. Frustrating. Frustrating. Healthy and productive companies cannot be built on fickle employees. If you're one of those employees that just don't show up for the job when you're supposed to, you probably won't have a job very long because they can't build a company on fickle employees. Likewise, healthy and productive churches can't be built on fickle Christians. I know, I'm getting a little personal here. But you know, can I tell you? I think, I think you know me well enough now. I've been here a number of years. I think you know me well enough that you know I love you. Does anybody think I'm a hard master? Anybody think that I'm that cruel guy? I hope not, because I'm not. I love you. And you know, I love you so much I'm telling the truth. Because I would rather have the truth be told right now when you can do something about it, rather than me tell you, no, you're fine, you're cool, don't want to cause any problems here, don't want to ruffle any feathers, but then get to heaven and God say, you wicked, lazy servant. And you're going to say, wait, 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 Pastor Mike said I was good. All right? Do you see, do you see why, why have logic has to make sense here? We have to make sense of this. We have to understand that God is expecting some from, something from us. The reality is God knows the heart of all people and he knows the nature of the commitment that he will find on the end of the day when rewards and punishments are justly meted out. I think it's a safe thing to say that there will be no fickle people in heaven. You will not have that problem in heaven dealing with fickle, fickle, Fickleality. <laughs> there will be no such thing as a fickle person because the people that get to heaven, they're all in, baby. They were all in on earth and they're going to be all in in heaven. <laughs> they're all in because they were all in here. 
I've got to tell you, folks, commitment to the body of Christ is vitally important. I'm not saying commitment to center point assembly of God. I'm not saying commitment to the Catholic Church. I'm not saying commitment. I'm not saying it that way. But I'm saying commitment to the body of Christ. And where is the body of Christ? Right here. It's us. And if you're here one minute and gone the next, what is that saying? What is it saying? I mean, logically, can we build a church on that? Do you think Christ is going to come back and say, I'm proud of you? When I spent many times maybe out doing something I was doing, I'd rather be someplace else, not in church. I mean, I, do, you see, do you see the logic? I'm not beating you up. I'm just trying to get the logic point put in here. Why would a lazy worker expect to be rewarded with a promotion and a big raise at the end of the year if he isn't producing throughout the year on a daily basis? Doesn't make sense. Verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Let's take the lesson of this parable. And let's learn from it today while we have the time to be sure that we are one of the two faithful servants. It's your choice. Nobody can make that choice but you. Are you faithful or are you fickle? We could have titled it that way, the faithful or fickle sermon. Are you faithful or are you fickle? There's faithful people in heaven, no fickle people in heaven. We want the Lord to say to us, well done, Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that our heart would hear the word that you've placed in front of us today and that we would find ourselves on our faces before you asking for forgiveness for our fickle nature because we all are to some degree. I am included. And Father, I just come against the spirit of laziness in me. I come against the spirit of laziness in this church. And Father, I just ask you to be in total control. Father, I pray that you bring conviction where conviction needs to be and commendation where commendation needs to be because some of us are really faithful here. Some of us really, really are doing a great job. And some of us have a little work to do. So I pray, Father, that we would take this lesson, apply it, and be faithful. In the name of Jesus, amen.